This episode contains mentions of sexual and physical abuse, as well as substance abuse. Listener discretion is advised. We are not licensed professionals or therapists, and we are not attempting to diagnose, treat, or prevent, or cure. This podcast is strictly our experiences and opinions only. podcast. We are so happy today to have Kathy with us. Kathy reached out to me and told me a little bit about her story and I believe this is going to be a very powerful and a very motivating story to hear. So Kathy, I want you to kind of start with a little bit about yourself. Sure. Hi everybody. Um, I just wanted to start by saying that, you know, I'm currently 51 years old and um, have been through quite a bit in my life. Um, I'll start in the beginning. Um, I was raised in a household um, of four children who I was always led to believe growing up, all four of us were one and the same. I had no reason to anything different. Um until um, I started growing up a little bit, getting a little bit older, where you get to a point where you really start, you're kind of curious about your household and the people in your household. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm talking like ages five to 10, maybe. Up to that point, unfortunately, I really don't have a lot of memory from before five years of age. I'm told it's very typical for someone that's been through traumatic things that you'll have these blocks of time that you won't recall very readily in your memory. So my oldest um, memory going back is at about five or six years of age. And I knew my father, you know, wasn't, was I knew he drank alcohol, but at five years old, you don't really understand what an alcoholic is. Um, you just understand that you have, a person in your household that acts differently mm-hmm. at times and you don't understand it. It's very confusing as a child to be around that. I had two sisters, one younger, one older, and who I thought for many years was my older brother. Well, you know, I grew up with this pact with my sisters that anytime my father was drunk or drinking, we would kind of huddle up together in one bed in our bedroom we shared a bedroom so it was usually my older sister had her own bed and you know my younger sister and I shared a bunk bed set um but we had this pact um between the three of us that if you know dad was drinking or he was acting out that we would all just kind of camp out in one bed together and just kind of support each other through those moments and then you know the visit the physical violence started I was probably about seven, the first memory I have of it. And it was literally, picture being seven years old, not really understanding what's going on in your household as it is. And then like literally being woke up in the middle of the night and all you can smell is this overwhelming smell of vodka, alcohol. Um, You have no idea why you're being awoke. Um, You're being screamed at pulled out of the bed, beat with a belt, 
these beatings happened pretty frequently for me as a child. And it wasn't just me. I was never just the focus. It was all of us girls. And we never understood. He never, my father never did give us a reason why he did the things he did. I'm assuming it was because he was a violent alcoholic. Um, And that is just how he chose to deal with his own pain. There was a night that happened when I was about 10 years old that I recall very vividly, unfortunately, for me. Um, And, you know, here all these years growing up, I'm thinking I've got this older brother. He's a protector. If I can't turn to my father, I can turn to him. Mm -hmm. And quickly I learned that there was something really off there with that relationship. You know, my, my brother started showing like sexual tendencies towards my sisters and I, and then it became almost like a game to him where he would play on our fears of our father so that he could have us alone in his room. And I won't go into detail, but there was a lot of sexual abuse that happened. So as a little girl at 10 years old, you know, you're trying to understand what's happening and, and you can't, you can't really make good sense of it. So the only option I felt like I had was to go to my father and tell my father what was happening to me, like what my brother was doing to me and my sisters. And in my mind, at 10 years old, I'm thinking, okay, when you have a problem, you go to your parent and then they fix the problem. And at 10 years old, that's the only real comprehension you have of it. Well, unfortunately for me, it it backfired in a way. Um, I could never have known that there was so many dark secrets being, you know, hidden um, until this all happened. And Basically, what happened from that is my father started attacking my mother and saying that, you know, it was all her fault. She should have never had that child out of wedlock. And all of a sudden, it started to become apparent to us girls that my brother was very different than us. Mm-hmm. And there was a reason behind that. And we, of course, didn't never did get all of our questions answered, but... It's my understanding now as an adult that my mother had a, a, a child, a baby boy out of wedlock just before meeting my father, my birth father. And apparently my birth father decided since it was back in like, you know, the 50s, you know, it, was, it wasn't okay for a woman to be pregnant and not be married. Yeah. And my mom's parents, my grandparents were, you know, going to send her off somewhere. Um, because it was such a shameful and embarrassing thing at that time to have happened in a family. So to avoid that from happening, from what I understand, my father stepped up and married my mother, and there was this dark family secret at that point about the baby. You know, like, we'll just, everybody, as far as everybody knows, you know, Brian, who was my stepbrother, um, as far as everyone knew for many years, he was, our brother. He, you know, my father was his father Mm -hmm. and my mother was his mother. It wasn't until many years later when I brought some of the sexual abuse to my father's attention, it triggered something in my father. I'm assuming that he must have had a lot of hate towards my stepbrother for many years. Mm -hmm. Um, Never really, I don't think took to him as his own child. Um, 
And so all of a sudden, you know, the violence turned um, from us girls, me and my sisters, to my mother and my brother. I do recall one evening, my mom was a nurse and worked many night shifts, mostly night shifts. And so a lot of times as kids were home alone with our dad in the evenings or at night, overnight. And I remember waking my sister up one night and saying, what is that noise? I hear this noise, but I'm afraid to go out of our room to see what it was. And it was like a weird tapping sound. And it almost, I thought it sounded like my father talking, having a conversation with someone, but I knew that it was nighttime and that would be very odd for him to have somebody in the house having a conversation with him. So my oldest sister decided to be brave enough to open our bedroom door and kind of peek down the hall and see if, if she could see what was going on. And um, she described it to me as that when she opened the door and she looked down the hall, all she saw was my father sitting in a fetal position in front of my our stepbrother's bedroom door with a machete in his hand just rocking back and forth and talking to himself. And it wasn't, from what I understand, pleasant things that he was saying. Mm -hmm. Up to that point, my oldest sister really didn't show any signs of of any of this affecting her like it did my younger sister and I. I think we were a little more traumatized by everything that was happening in the house. But this must have really scared her because... We were also close in age that at one point we were in the same elementary school, just in different grades. And I remember this lady coming into my first grade class or whatever grade I was in at the time. And she came into the class and I remember her going to my teacher and saying she was here for, you know, to speak with me. She needed to speak with me. And um, of course she pulled me out of class and over, you know, to an office and I get to the office and I see my other two sisters sitting there as well. And I knew right away that something bad, really bad must have happened. And um, this lady sat us down and explained to us that she was with Child Protective Services and that my older sister had gone to her teacher that morning and told her what she had seen. And they basically just explained to us very briefly that we were going to be very confused for a while and we wouldn't understand what was happening, but that we were safe now. And I remember like even hearing that word safe didn't really mean anything to me. As crazy as that sounds, like as an adult, when somebody says, oh, you're safe, it's almost like you instantly get calm. That just the sound of the word safe makes you calm. Yeah. But it didn't hit me that way. I remember just it feeling completely opposite of that. Like all of this unknown and and scary stuff was happening and what is happening and just being really confused about everything. Well, and that's your family too. I mean, yeah, yeah, it wasn't always pleasant, but that was your home, your family. And so I'm sure it was scary. It was very traumatizing to go through. So, They removed us three girls from the home temporarily and I guess did an investigation to find out what was going on with my stepbrother. And at that point, my stepbrother was like 17, I think, or 17 and a half. He was nearing 18 years old. And believe it or not, CPS gave my mother an option and said, you either remove your your stepson or their stepbrother from the home or the girls can't live here. 
your daughters can't live here and they'll go to homes. So like, I can't even imagine even now as an adult, I have kids that are now grown of my own. I cannot imagine a mother being put in that position. Oh no. Cause they're all your children. Right. How do you choose? Right. Yeah. From what I understand of it, you know, my mom agreed and, and told my brother basically at like 17 years old, you've got to go. Moved out, moved in with some friends of his, I think. But the funny part about it all is that like he was the he was the scapegoat, you know, in a way. It was it was crazy to me how they never investigated my father. That was all over overlooked completely. You know, it was like they heard oh, their brother touched them in an inappropriate way. And then, like, my brother was the bad guy, and that was it, case shut. So, of course, you know, the alcoholism with my father continued, you know, over the years. Um, It wasn't as much directed to me in my preteen and teen years as it was my mom. It was like he flipped and decided she was the bad guy now, and she took the brunt of it all. And then I remember turning 16 years old and, you know, like I had a boyfriend like we all do in mm-hmm. high school and you start exploring like more outside of your own home environment and you start realizing that people live very differently than you. Yeah. And like how you've been living and how you've been raised is like not the norm. Mm-hmm. It can't be normal everybody else can't be crazy and I'm normal. Like they have to be normal and I'm the crazy one. Yeah. So, you know, I started going to concerts and hanging out with my friends and, you know, one of my friends one day was like, why are you still living there? Like, just leave, just, just leave. And I remember it being like so empowering to just hear those words from someone else. Like, Oh yeah, Yeah. just, just leave. And that's exactly what I did. I packed a bag and I remember telling my father, and I don't know why to this day I felt the need to tell him to literally seek him out in the house and say, hey, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. Mm -hmm. I don't know what I was expecting from that at at the time. I was 16 years old. You know, maybe I wanted really that little inner child in me probably wanted him to desperately say no you can't do that. I love you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because I was always trying to get his love and his attention in a pop, you know, from a positive standpoint and never could. So I'm sure that that's probably where it came from. Um, but yeah, that's not what I got. What I got was literally my dad looked me in the eyes and he said, well, that's fine, but just remember the door only swings or doesn't swing both ways. Not, not the reaction you wanted of, no, you're my daughter, stay, I'm sorry, you know, like, no validation. Yeah. You didn't get any validation. None at all. Matter of fact, you know, I wasn't reported as a runaway by either one of my parents. They let, they I, just let you go. They just let me go. Um, you know, I kept in touch with my younger sister to make sure she was Okay. Um, but I literally was like couch hopping from one friend's house to another for some period of time, probably a little over a year. Um, this is in my, now I'm in my senior year of high school at this point, literally like one day, like before I lived in Florida, I lived in New York as a young child, but yeah, we made this crazy quick move from New York to Florida and 
the whole point of me telling you that is that now where I was at in my story at 16, 17 years old and, you know, I run away and all of a sudden I get a contact, I get contact from this boy that I knew in New York as a kid. Mm-hmm. Like he was that boy in the group as little kids that would walk all of us girls home when the streetlights came on at night. Like just a really nice guy Yeah, as a kid. I had happy memories of him and he reached out to me and, you know, he's like, well, you know, I heard that you're living here in Florida. I just moved to Florida too. Um, and I'd love, you know, to take you out on a date. So of course I went, I mean, I only had good memories of him. There was no reason not to. So went on this date, the rest was history. The next thing I know I'm getting married, I'm buying a house, you know, um, having children and getting all caught up in, you know, the keeping up with the Joneses kind of lifestyle. I, you know, became very quickly a soccer mom, if you will, and, you know, was very into my kids. And I remember being very, very conscious when I was having my children. I remember being very conscious of the fact that the cycle would end with me, with my family, that, you know, there was no way my kids would ever endure the pains that I endured as a child. But in my mind, at this point, you have to remember, I still haven't gotten any type of counseling. I've, I'm literally just stumbling through life on my own with it all yeah, and trying to make sense of all of this stuff and had fooled myself into believing that because I escaped it all, I dealt with it. Right. Like, yeah. It's not there we're anymore. So ourselves that way, you know? like, it's easy yeah, to be like, know? oh, that was in the past. I'm okay now. It happened. Yeah. Like I had a whole new life. So, <laughs> you know, in my mind, I had just, I had dealt with it all and I had healed from it all. And, you know, that was no longer going to bother me. And then, you know, my mom was always like this people pleasing kind of person in the sense where she swept everything under the rug. Yep. And in her defense, I think it was just her codependency of my father's drinking problem. Mm -hmm. It's the only way she knew how to deal with all of the negative around her. Um, I don't excuse a lot of her behavior or lack of action on the part of her children. But in her defense, I think that she just shut down and emotionally she didn't know how to deal with any of it. She just didn't. Um, So... You know, I got on the date with this guy and, you know, we get married and, you know, we buy a house and, you know, life is just, you know, going and it seems really well. And I'm loving being a mom and being so involved in my kids' lives. And and then my father died. Oh, no. After being estranged from him for many years, I literally get a phone call that he's gone. Like, he's gone. Not like he's in the hospital come say your goodbyes. And the funny part is, is that I remember thinking for many years up to that very moment that I could not wait until that day came. Because to me, to be able to bury my father was to be able to bury my pain from my childhood. And again, it's funny how our minds play tricks on us like that. Like we feel like that is a healing. That's going to heal everything. That's going to make everything better and make everything okay. And I wasn't prepared emotionally to have just the opposite feelings. Like I was having true grief. I was truly grieving his passing. And I was very angry that I never got an opportunity to sit down with him 
and try and heal things, Mm -hmm. you know, um, or get some answers at least, you know, for myself. So I felt almost like, like I'd been cheated out of that somehow. And like you regret not, not sitting with them and, and having that conversation. Yeah, I genuinely do. Um, people will probably think that's crazy, but part of the healing process that this I've learned now, part of the healing process is, you know, we have to talk to our demons. Yeah. We have to address them, whatever they are. Um, and until you're ready to do that and you can do that, you're really cheating yourself out of truly healing completely. So yeah, my dad passed and I had a tough time with that. And I remember like, even a couple weeks after that thinking, oh, okay, well, that feeling's passed and let me get back to my life now. Mm -hmm. And then I had a very traumatic car accident. I was ejected from the driver's window of my vehicle onto a very busy highway um, and landed in a ditch on the side of the highway. And it was very serious. I really don't remember a lot about it. Um, I do remember laying there in the ditch at one point and I, I still sometimes even will have night terrors to this day of the sound of traffic just rushing by the by me and I remember having this immediate thought of fear this fearful thought of I'm just gonna lay here and die and no one's even gonna know I'm here oh, that's heart-wrenching and that's probably all I really remember of it, the next thing, my next memory after that is waking up post-op because they took me, you know, by air into the hospital. I went right into surgery. Um, I had to have a major surgery on my neck. It's like a multi-level disc fusion. They had to fuse my discs to the vertebrae in my neck just so that my head, I wouldn't be like a bobble head, you know, like it had to be attached somehow. It had to be reattached. And unfortunately for me, a lot of tendons and things that normally would attach or, or brace that stuff together had been torn so bad that there was really no repairing it immediately. Yeah. Um, so I went through this major surgery. And I remember thinking even coming out of that, like, oh, it's going to be okay. Like, I'm alive. You know, I yeah. survived it. I'm alive. So I'm good. And again, I got right back on that horse of getting back into my life and went to the doctors. They said, okay, you need these opiate medicine. You need these pain medications. You need to be on pain management. Again, at that time, I was like a soccer mom. I was very naive to street drugs or any kind of drugs, really. Um, I had no idea that you could become so addicted to a pain medication. Yeah. So here we go with the refilling of prescriptions every month for several months. Thought it was normal. I mean, they're prescribing them to me, right? Yeah. Who wouldn't think that way? Um, But what I wasn't prepared for is when I went in for my final visit with pain management and they said, oh, no more prescription. You're good. You don't need it anymore. 
And I remember thinking in that moment, oh, thank God I don't have to go through any of this anymore. Like just the hassle of taking off work, going to the doctor, mm-hmm. having to be assessed all the time, going and picking up prescriptions. Like I remember in the moment thinking like, oh, thank gosh, I don't have to do with, deal with none of this mess anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. And it wasn't even hours after I left that doctor's appointment that I got violently sick and had no idea why. Like, I just remember, like, I could barely move. All my muscles hurt. I was vomiting. I had diarrhea. I mean, every symptom you could think of, blue-wise, I had. And I didn't understand why. I didn't know what was going on. And, you know, because I lived on the street as a teenager for a little while, unfortunately, I had some friends that weren't as good a kid as as me. (laughs) And... Um, of course I reached out to them, you know, like what's going on? Like, I don't understand what's happening with me. I feel like I'm going to die. Yeah. And I remember this quote friend of mine at the time saying, you know, Oh, I can fix it for you. I know what the problem is. You're, you're having withdrawals, opiate withdrawals. I'll just bring you over a little something. Oh, I'll make it feel better. I'll give you more. Right. So again, you know, being naive like I was, I was like, anything to stop feeling this awful, like if that's all it takes, then yeah, that let's do that. From there, it just literally snowballed into a street drug addiction where here I was, 40-something years old, mother of two kids. They were nearing... Um, you know, their early 20s, they were getting ready to move out of my house and move on with their own lives. And, you know, my daughter was getting into college, my son was moving in with a roommate. And I remember feeling a little bit of like the empty nest syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling like I needed to do this more. Like, I need to do more of this. However, it was making me feel that numb feeling that I don't need to feel anything kind of feeling um, was working for me in the moment. And I wanted to, I wanted to feel that more. I didn't want to feel sad that my kids were moving out. I I didn't want to feel unneeded or unwanted. You know, when you pour your heart and soul into raising your children and all of a sudden they move out, it's like bittersweet, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you're happy for them that you've raised good, beautiful people into the world. But, you know, then all of a sudden I didn't have a purpose anymore. Yeah, that was, that's your whole life. You're their mother. You raise them and then that's it. Now what? Exactly how I was feeling. Um, so it snowballs into this whole street drug addiction. I was doing it all. I was going to crack houses. I was buying pills off the street. I was hiding in my car behind grocery stores and, and shopping plazas, snorting, you know, four and five oxycodones at a time. I was what you would call a functioning addict in the sense that I held down a really good career through it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this is the, all the devil talking to you. You know, this is his way of, of persuading you to believe that you've got it all under control. Yeah. You're functioning. Nobody knows. Not that bad, Mm -hmm. you know? So I started taking money 
stealing money from my employer to pay for my habit. Mm -hmm. Because at this point in my marriage, my marriage was starting to show signs of narcissism. Like I was starting to feel like my husband was treating me a certain kind of way. There was a lot of emotions going on with me that I wasn't addressing. Yeah, because you were numbing that. Yeah, I was just numbing everything. Like, and it just became a vicious cycle. Get up every day. That was the thought of the day. Where am I going to get my next pill from? Mm. How am I going to pay for it? Um, I was a full-blown addict. And because my husband was the way he was with me and very controlling, I knew that if I was using my paycheck, he would know very quickly that I was spending bill money, house money, whatever you want to call it on something that I would have to explain. Yeah. And I didn't want to have to do that. So, you know, my resolution to it was I started stealing money from my employer and using that money to pay for my addiction. This went on for almost a full year before literally one day I just, my conscience got the best of me. I don't even really know. People have asked me, you know, like what made you like go to your employer and tell on yourself? Yeah. Who does that? You might've got away with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, my answer to that is very simple. I think that when you do an awful thing or you make a really bad choice in your life, it comes down to can you live with it or not? Right. You're, you know, can you live with, with, with what you've done? Yeah, your conscience without, steps in and you, yeah. Right. So thankfully, thankfully for me, I think, you know, I had a conscience and it was eating away at me. These people were very good to me. They, you know, I worked for them for over seven years. They treated me like family. I babysat their kids, watched their homes when they would go on, you know, lavish vacations, family vacations and whatnot. Um, there was nothing they wouldn't have done for me. So it was gut wrenching to me in my sober moments to think that I had done what I had done. I literally woke up one morning and instead of just like normal, as normal, I would go into work and, you know, just go about my day. But instead I woke up and I remember I was getting ready for work and I was getting ready to sniff my pills because that was my morning routine. Yeah. And something stopped me from doing it to this day. I don't know what it was. It was almost just like I had this breakdown all of a sudden and everything became so overwhelming emotionally and I didn't even want to nub anymore. Like, that's how overwhelming it was. Was that the and moment I, you realized that you wanted that, to make a change? Were you at that point yet? No, I wasn't there quite yet. Um, but I was getting there. Mm-hmm. You know, there was little glimmers of me coming back in small doses, I think, at that point. This was one of those moments Um, You have to understand, you know, typically I'm the type of person and always have been my whole life. Like I would never hurt a fly. Yeah. I certainly would never take anything that didn't belong to me. I was a bookkeeper, a full charge bookkeeper at this job that I was at. Mm -hmm. So I was bonded. I was a notary. I was very trusted. You know, I was very loyal. 
um, definitely not ever the person that you would point at in, in any way, shape or form and think would do, had done something like what I had done. So instead of going into work that morning, I decided to call my employer personally on his cell phone and started the conversation out the only way I knew how to, which was, Jason, I'm really sorry, but I've stole a lot of money from the company. Wow. I didn't even know any other way to say it. Like it literally just flowed out of my mouth like that. And I remember him at first kind of giggling, you know, like he thought it was a joke. Like he was like, what are you talking about, Kathy? And I was like, no, I'm serious. Yeah. Like I, I really took money from the company. And he still didn't sound angry at that point. He was kind of still very light about it and was like, well, what kind of money are we talking about? How much money are you talking about? And I believe in his mind, he probably thought it was something silly, like I borrowed 20 bucks for lunch or something. Yeah. Which he would not have cared about, you know? Yeah, he probably would have let you because of who you were and how trusting you were. I was being silly for being upset about it, you know? Yeah. And... I said, you know, honestly, I don't know. I wish I could tell you, but I don't know the amount of money that I took. I have no idea. I didn't keep track. I just know that I've been doing it for almost a year now, off and on. And with that, he just said, you know, Kathy, I I don't know what to say to you right now. I will tell you that you're not allowed to come in this office and that I'll contact you after I've done a thorough like accounting audit yeah and I was like okay I said but please just know that you know I'm really sorry for what I've done and I want an opportunity to pay it back and he said well I can't promise you that until after I see how bad the damage is and I was like I just remember being so scared so scared when he hung up that phone I knew that my fate was in his hands at that point. Yeah. And there was nothing I was going to do about it to change anything. Like the train was already on the tracks and it's going and, you know, just is what it is and whatever's going to happen is going to happen to me. And Oh my God, my family doesn't know what I've done yet. Like nobody knew. I kept my addiction very well hidden from my family, friends, coworkers, etc. So a couple days later, maybe a week or so later, there's a knock at my door at my home. And sure enough, it's the police. Mm. And all they said is, are you Kathy Littlewood? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, well, put your hands behind your back, ma'am. You're being arrested. We have a warrant for you for grand theft. I just remember like feeling so little in that moment. Like, who have I become? What have I become? I'd never been in trouble a day in my life before this. Like I was not even the girl that got detention in school. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I was a good girl. I, I, I didn't do things wrong. And I've always had a huge heart. Like I was always that girl who would give you the shirt off my back. Like I was helping strangers. I wanted to heal everybody, help everybody, love everybody. So this was like, I don't even know if I have a word for it other than traumatic. It was very traumatic. 
And, uh, of course, they get me down to the little station and, you know, as they do, sit me in this little room and a detective came in with a big folder in her hand. And she sat down and she said, I'm going to give you one opportunity to tell me the truth. And I said, well, I'm not going to lie to you. I took a lot of money. I don't know how much money it was, but I know it was a lot. And I had an addiction and I didn't know how else to handle it. She said, okay, well, I think that sums it up. You know, we've got you on video, cash and checks and at ATMs and, you know, showed me a lot of the evidence that they had collected over that week. Yeah. And I knew that there was, there was no redemption in me trying to say I wasn't guilty. So I decided to plead guilty right away and was lucky enough to be given lucky enough. It sounds funny to say it this way, but I was lucky enough to be given 15 years probation because I was a good girl and never been in trouble before. Yes. And because I'd never been in trouble before to me, 15 years of probation sure sounded a lot better than any time in prison. Oh yeah. So I took it. I took that option thinking I could do this, you know, and immediately I went right to detox Nobody sent me there. I did it on my own. My court case doesn't even say anything about my drug problem because they looked at it like they're two totally different things. Yeah. To them, all they cared about is you stole a lot of money. It's grand theft, period. We don't care the reasons why you did it. You did it. So, but I knew that that was the stemming reason why I did what I did. So I checked myself into a rehab center locally to me. I literally called a taxi cab, packed a like backpack bag of clothes, and I went. And you, did you tell family? I did not. I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. I literally, as soon as I got home from court that day, I started calling local rehabs, seeing did they have space available. And I remember I didn't have insurance at the time, so that was a big thing too. I was trying to find somewhere that would take me. Um, without insurance and I got lucky several calls in uh, to different places and they said yes we have a bed but you have to come now if not we give it to the next person and so I packed a bag and I called a taxi cab and off I went not knowing (laughs) that when you go into detox there's a certain period of time you can't talk to family you can't talk to anyone yeah (laughs) this is how naive I was to the whole system of it all so there I sat for like I think it was three or five days that I was medically detoxing from the opiates and I was not able to have visitors, phone calls, nothing. So at this point, nobody knew where you were. No, they didn't. They didn't know what had happened to me. So you just disappeared um, for five days. Well, I had forgotten too. Like I was worried about that, you know, that whole week that I was in detox. I'm like, oh my gosh, my family's probably worried sick. But I had forgotten that. Before I left, I did call one person, and that was my probation officer. Because, oh. <laughs> you know, if there was anyone I wanted to know where I was at all times, it was going to be her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she needed to know that. Yeah, so I called her to tell her where I was going. So she knew where I was. And I guess that a couple days in, my husband reached out to my probation officer. And, you know, funny enough, it wasn't to help me. You know, being a narcissist that he he is, he saw an opening or what he thought was an opening to get me in trouble, Mm. um, to have me violated, to make my life more difficult. So he called my probation officer initially to kind of like snitch on me for not being living where I said I was living and being where I'm supposed to be. And it kind of backfired on him in a way that 
she said, well, you know, I know where she is, you know, she's in a rehab center and I've approved her to stay there as long as she keeps in contact with me. So that's where she is. But I can't tell you where she is because I'm not allowed to tell you. She's just out of rehab. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you that was probably the most peaceful two months of my life up to that point, I learned so much while I was there. I got clean. I got sober. I call it getting right and staying right. You know, like yeah, I, I got that. sober, all the emotions started coming back, all the feelings started coming back, all the thoughts started coming back. It's a lot. It's very overwhelming at first. I think I just knew in that moment of my life that if I didn't finally deal with some of these demons and some of these feelings and some of these thoughts, that they would haunt me literally the rest of my life. And I wasn't okay with that idea. You know, I started going to counseling. I went and, you know, saw counselors and and started going to, um, you know, like meetings to stay sober. I remember the counselor that I went to see, you know, she she did some inner child work with me um, through therapy sessions. And, you know, she even told me, you know, that I was my worst enemy most of my life in that sense that I get, I learned, I learned to give people passes where passes weren't due. Right. And, and it's sad, but that's how I came out of it. With complex PTSD, I came out with trust issues, but yet I would still give people passes, mm-hmm. even though they didn't deserve it. Because I was so wanting still, I was still that little girl so wanting to feel that love that I never got from my father. Yeah. You know? It's it's very cliche to say, but I promise you that it's 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 overwhelming for a lady, a woman to go through your childhood that way. It forms a foundation for you with men in general. I know this now. I didn't know it then. Yeah. So here I'm still in this abusive marriage. But I'm walking on eggshells, right, because I'm on probation. And as a true narcissist will do, he knew exactly what to do to control me. There was always that threat. I'll call your probation officer and I'll tell her X, Y, Z. And she's going to believe me, not you, because you're the felon. So yet again, I was allowing fear to control me. You know, he was controlling everything. The, you know, the abuse finally got to a point where it wasn't just emotional and verbal anymore. Now he was getting physical with me too. And I don't know where I found the strength. I really don't, but... I I called CASA, which is a huge domestic abuse shelter for women. Yet again, Kathy packed a bag, called a cab, and off she went. And off she went for the second time. So now this will be the third time in my life at this point that I feel like I've had to run from everything just to be okay with myself. So I got a lot more help when I got to CASA in the sense of, you know, They started, you know, I started attending some group therapy sessions with other women who were sharing their stories. And I remember like just feeling a little bit of healing through listening to what some of them were saying, like just those little tiny moments where I was hearing someone else's story. And I'm like, I thought I was the only one. Like I had no idea that other people felt this way or had gone through these things. And for the first time in my life, I was put in an arena of people and had people around me that were extremely supportive. They got it. They understood it. They were compassionate about it. Mm -hmm. And for me, that made all the difference in me staying sober. 
Like I, I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had any longer had a need to be numb. I literally was like, okay, Kathy, we're getting up every day. We're going to fight these demons, get the baseball bat out, whatever it takes. I had this newfound strength of some sort, got through it. You know, I, I left Casa. I'm still homeless. I'm not in what I guess most people will consider a better place. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a better place because I have peace. Yeah. You know, I have some peace in my heart, in my mind. Nobody controls what I do or what I say. You know, being in an abusive relationship strips you of everything. Yeah. It strips you of everything. You, you feel like you become nothing in this world. Nobody cares. You don't matter. And so for me, it was empowering. You know, it's empowering. Um, it was a step forward. Once I, you know, left CASA and started, you know, trying to figure out where I'm going from here. Unfortunately for me, here we are five years in. My abuser was so angry that he couldn't find me to abuse me anymore. He yet again made a phone call to my probation officer. The problem for me is that at this point, it was a brand new probation officer that I had no rapport or history with. The first one, I had had the same probation officer for the first four years mm-hmm. of probation. Four years gives you enough time to really, I think, get to know that person enough to know whether you have to really worry about them or not um, and what they're up to and where they are. So I had a really good, I I built up to a good relationship with her, but unfortunately, because I went to CASA, I moved into a different city. When you move into a different city on probation, you get assigned a whole new probation officer. This new officer didn't know who I was, had not even met me in person yet. All she really knew is she had been informed by the police that I was brought to CASA and that's where I was at and Mm -hmm. why. Other than that, I'd had no contact with her, no conversations with her. So she really knew nothing about me. Why she would believe my abuser to this day, I'm baffled by it. But in my opinion, it's just another kick in the gut that mm-hmm. I think abused women go through where people either don't believe or they don't want to believe that these things are happening. But at any rate, you know, he made a phone call. He made accusations that weren't true. But, you know, the system wasn't my friend that day. Instead of that officer doing her job properly and investigating it thoroughly, she didn't. She just violated. Yeah. You needed support. Seven. You needed to be heard. Yeah. And and that's the one of the hardest things about standing up for yourself is sometimes that happens where they don't believe you or they don't help you. And you've taken that step to be like, I need help or this is what's going on and you're not believed. Yeah. So I was in complete shock. I, I could not believe that they didn't believe me mm-hmm. um, and that they believed him over me. But again, I go into survival mode, right? Cause I'm good at it now. I'm really good at survival mode. Like, like a switch that goes off, you know, something bad happens, survival mode mm-hmm. instantly. So I, I started, you know, talking with my public defender, finding out like, what is the situation? Well, there's a warrant out for you. They're going to come get you with a warrant. It, it, it's not anything I can control. The violation went to your judge. Your judge signed it. They're going to issue a warrant for the violation of probation charge now. So now I'm just a sitting duck waiting, you know, for the police to come. So sure enough, they came and they arrested me. This was right before COVID. 
I go to county jail and I'm thinking, even though it's a violation of probation, I'm probably not going to be in here very long. You know, I'll see my judge and he'll hopefully reinstate my probation. And I'm thinking everything's going to be fine. Well, seven months goes by and I still can't get a court date to see my judge. (laughs) So I'm fighting for a conversation with my public defender. Finally, my public defender comes to see me in jail and says, Kathy, don't you know what's going on in the world? And I said, I'm in jail. No, I don't know what's going on in the world. (laughs) And uh, she said, you know, she explained to me all about COVID and the lockdowns were happening, just starting to happen. And she said, it's good and bad for you. The good news is, is that I'm, I'm requesting that you be released on ROR, which is released on your own recognizance pending your trial, your pretrial hearing. Mm-hmm. So I'm not out of the woods yet by any means legally, but I might get out of jail at least. So that happened in March, 2020. They, they did come to my cell and said, you know, you're, you're going home on ROR and you'll have a court date issued to you eventually. That was March of 2020. Here we are in what August, 2023. So for the last little over three years, I've been trying to get the state attorney to negotiate my case, my sentencing, so that I wouldn't have to do any prison time. And it's come down to the simple fact that it's a lot of money that I took validly. Um, But apparently, you know, recognizing you have a problem, curing that problem, changing your life for the better, getting sober, staying sober, not getting in trouble again, trying to escape an abusive marriage or relationship that I was in, like none of these factors came into play in my sentencing. They don't care. They do not care about any of that. So it's come down to that. um, In a few days, I will sign a plea agreement for 36 months Department of Corrections for the state of Florida. It's sad in a way that it has to come to that. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm probably the last human being that needs to be put in a cell and locked away. Again, I've gotten really good at being a survivor. If I learned anything through everything I've gone through in my life so far, it's been, you can be the victim or you can be a survivor. And there truly is a difference because I was the victim for a long time, like through that time that I was addicted you know, to the pain pills and whatnot. Like I was truly a victim of my circumstances. Yeah. No doubt about it. But when I started to change the way I think, literally the way I think, and now I think, okay, when something go- bad happens or go- something doesn't go my way, I'm a survivor. I'm not a victim. And survivors find solutions, right? Mm-hmm. They find a-, a way to survive yeah. and come out of it okay. So... I started, you know, obviously I went on a spiritual journey. I've always had a lot of faith in God, but my, my spiritual journey got accelerated, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and felt the need to really get close to God in this time. I also have had this huge urge, you know, or passion, if you will, to want to pay it forward somehow to others. I don't want anyone to have to be that little girl I was for as long as I was. And I say that because I feel like I went almost into my 40s as a little girl, that hurt little girl. And I I don't wish that on anyone. It's the most painful thing 
to walk through your life carrying all these burdens and baggage and and pain and hurt. I say to people a lot, like, I could have very easily been that girl in the alley with a needle in my arm, and I'm the victim, and woe is me. Mm -hmm. I have all the reasons. I've been through all these awful traumas repeatedly, but I made a choice to be a survivor. It's, it's a choice to do that. And I want to live. And I know that that wasn't my purpose. That's not what I was put here to do. What I was put here to do was exactly what I was saying earlier, to be that girl that I always was, that loves everybody openly, unconditionally, wants to help people without wanting something in return. Mm-hmm. Like that's who I am at my core being. And that is this all had to happen for her, for me to find her again. Yeah. Now that I found her again, this is, this is where I get to pay it forward. You know, I did start a page on Facebook um, originally just as a simple support group. I just wanted to get my story out there to other people and let them know, like, don't be afraid to share your story. There's healing in that. Yeah. Not just for others, but you know, from a selfish standpoint, I heal a little bit more every time I, I have someone, you know, share a story with me, share their story. It's healing all the way around. And they, you know, the demons don't want you to talk about them. They want you to stay quiet so they can, you know, keep you down kind of say. But anyway, I run a page. It's called No Soul Left Behind. And, you know, the name alone probably speaks of the mentality of the page. But the mentality of the page is literally to offer others support for addiction recovery, continued recovery, and also healing from past traumas. Um, I feel like over the years I've earned an emotional degree, if you will, (laughs) in all of this. Um, And what good is all that knowledge that I've gained if I don't share it with someone else that's desperate? And they haven't figured it out yet, or they can't figure it out for whatever reason. And I've always said since I started that page, you know, it's open to everyone and anyone is not monetary, you know? Like, when I have a follower from the page reach out to me and say, hey, I really needed to hear that today. Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, like, it helps me get through another day of sobriety or I left, you know, my abusive relationship because it finally sunk in that I deserve better than that. Yep. I'm worthy of more than that. It's not normal to live this way. That's the payoff for me. That's why you do it. Because so many people suffer silently for many, many years. And being able to have a support system in any way, even if it's just listening to someone else go through something similar, that can make a world of difference a hundred percent i mean i i tell people all the time now like it wasn't easy Mm -hmm. i'll never sit here and make it look like my journey was easy nor is it going to continue to be easy for me right now you know i'm getting ready to go sit in prison for 36 months and i am not what you would call quote quote a prison girl you know by any means of the word yeah but i also know that there has got to be a purpose to all the including that pain. Yeah. So, you know, I've already like decided that I'm going to try and, you know, eventually get into like missionary work in women's prison. 
That sounds amazing. I don't know why I feel so compelled to do this, but I feel very compelled to let, like, I feel like, just like me, a lot of them have gotten to that point in their life with nothing really to have faith in. Yeah. You know, and, and no one really relatable in their eyes, mm-hmm. you know? So I figured who better will they listen to or open their hearts to other than somebody that's actually walked that path. Exactly. Literally stood and sat in their shoes. And they need to feel hope again and feel purpose again. And that's something you can, you can give others from, from being a survivor, from sharing your story, from stepping in your power to show that you, you can get through it. It's not easy, but ultimately it makes you become who you're, you're meant to be. Yeah. I mean, I had to repair, you know, my relationships with both my adult children. I had a grandson, my very first grandson born while I was sitting in County jail over this mess of a life I created for myself. Like there are, there's been so many reasons along the way for me to give up. Yeah. For me to just say, forget it. I don't care. Like, let me just go back and, you know, do some drugs and and be numb again. But at the end of the day, there has to be a purpose to the pain. That's just who I am at my core. And I have to make sense of it all. It has to make sense somehow to me. This is the sense I'm making out of it is me sharing my story, getting it out there however I can and hoping that it touches at least one person's heart in the right way. And maybe I can be that catalyst for somebody somehow Mm -hmm. that lifts them out of a dark place where they feel forgotten and, and they just feel worthless. Like it doesn't like they don't matter to the world anymore because that's not the case, but I've been there myself Mm -hmm. mentally. And, and I know how, how disabling that is feeling that way. Yeah. And people mean well when they say, you know, oh, just get over it. You know, just get sober. Just do this. Just do that. People mean well. They have really good intentions with that. But the problem with that is you're not, you're not helping someone by saying that to them. Because now you're, now you're taking someone who is truly broken and you're telling them you're broken. Just get over it. Your feelings don't matter. Just get over it. Mm-hmm. You know, and if they're anything like me or have gone through anything like what I went through, you know, my biggest um, trauma, in my opinion, throughout my life has been the same song. And it's been, I just want to be loved. No, I'm not going to love you. I just want to be loved. No, I'm not going to love you. It's a repetitive pattern that led me into a narcissistic marriage of 31 years, mm-hmm. 31 years is almost the amount of years I've been alive. Yeah. You know, so if I can save one human from going down that ugly path and taking a little turn in another direction that allows them to live a little more, you know, and smile a little more and love life a little more, then it's all worth it. There's a poem, you know, that Emily Dickinson wrote. And when I first created my page, No Soul Left Behind on Facebook, it was like a poem that somebody sent me on a whim one day and was like, oh, this is a really cool poem. Maybe you could share it. 
And it's funny because it resonated with me so much and with the mentality for the page, I'm running there so much. I literally will like rehearse this poem before I do a live video now. Like to me, this is like, what do they call that? Like, um, my mission statement. Oh yeah. I feel like it's become like the mission statement of me paying it forward. And it goes like this. If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not have lived in vain. If I can ease one life the aching or heal one person's pain or help one fainting dream, I shall not have lived in vain. That poem says it all for me. It's mm-hmm. what I'm all about, what I hope to continue to be all about. You know, it is, it is definitely my wish and my hope that one day... I will look back at a lot of things that happened in my life and be like, yeah, well, that was tough, but I survived it. Yeah. And you've, you've come, you've come so far. You've learned so much. You've already healed a lot and you're about to embark on another difficult journey. You are a survivor and you'll come out of it and be able to help even more people. Thank you. I hope so. You know, eventually the main, you know, goal down the line, you know, is to finish schooling, get my counselor's degree. I want to be able to work in the area um, of, again, you know, helping others heal themselves because that is the key. I know this now. There's no good life going to come from a traumatic life. There's no good life going to happen until the healing happens. The healing has to happen for you to be able to move forward your life in a different way in a different direction well your story was phenomenal i think you're gonna have so many people relate to you and you are very inspiring you're you're strong you're brave and i can't imagine what the next 36 months are gonna be like for you but you're gonna you're gonna do it and you're gonna come out even better and you're gonna help so many people And so I thank you for sharing your story. Kathy decided to be a survivor, not a victim. Despite everything she had gone through, she chose to use her voice to help those that didn't feel so alone. Find Kathy's Facebook page, No Soul Left Behind, where she talks about her recovery and her healing. If you want to reach out to Kathy as she serves time, go to the FDLE website, and search for Kathleen Littlewood. Find her inmate number and the address and send her a letter. She'd love to hear any feedback or support during this time while she serves her sentence. I leave you with a Phoenix quote. Temper us in fire and we grow stronger than we suffer. We survive. If you would like to be considered for the podcast or would like to share your insight, email me at becky at thephoenixrisingpodcast.com. Stay up, rising phoenixes. You are loved. The Phoenix Rising podcast is licensed and trademarked and can only be represented through the podcast. Any other entities using the same name are not licensed or trademarked.